0: So there are moments in every single person's life where you are left sitting and wondering, uh, now what? Where do, I, where do I go from here? Those moments when things have not gone your way, um, those moments when life is being unfair, when you're perhaps reaping the consequences of some of your actions, Um, when you realize that no matter how well you laid out your plans, that your plans were no match for what reality was getting ready to offer you. (laughs) Anybody ever have that? Yeah, those those times when it's clear that no matter how hard you try, that you will not fulfill your dreams that you've had in life. Or even those moments where you feel like with everything that's going on in life, your only conclusion that you can draw is that perhaps God has abandoned you. And then you're left sitting and all you can do is wonder, now what? Where do I go from here? What do I do with this? How do I handle what life has done to me or handed me or has become for me? And nobody's immune to this. Um, And if you've not had that moment in life yet, where you've just sitting wondering, now what? Um, I've got two things to say to you. Um, One is, I really hope you understand the ease of the life you have lived so far. And number two is, it's coming. (laughs) It's gonna happen. And it's gonna happen to all of us. And for those of you who have had this moment, and perhaps some of you who have had multiples of these moments, whether that be over a lifetime or... (laughs) Into <laughs> crammed into a little tiny um, space where it seems like there's nothing possible left that life can do to you because so many things have happened, um, you know that the feeling can be hopelessly devastating that you can just feel completely lost and you can feel alone and you can feel scared and you can have no idea what it is that's next. Now, one of the things that as Christians that we have that is a huge advantage as we try to work through that feeling and those moments, um, one of the huge tools that we have at our disposal is the Bible. Now, how many of you have heard a pastor or um a person, a Christian of some sort, speaking to you, talking to you, have heard them say that the Bible has the answers. Anybody ever hear that? Yeah, yeah, the Bible has the answers. Okay, now let me ask you a follow-up question: How many of you have found yourself in a moment where you needed an answer and you picked up the Bible and you couldn't find an answer? Anybody? Yeah. This is a, this is an honest space. You can you can raise your hand. I I would guess that if you didn't raise your hand, either a you just didn't feel like raising your hand, or b you haven't gone to the Bible for an answer very often when you've needed answers. Um, Because here's the thing: most of us have gone to the Bible looking for an answer when we find ourselves in a position in life and not found it. Every single time, every single time that I buy a new vehicle. And by new, I mean not at all new. I've never bought a new vehicle. Every time I buy a different vehicle, the very first stop that I make every single time I take possession of a vehicle is the auto parts store. And I walk in and I buy one of the repair manuals that they sell. They're either made by Chilton's or Haynes, you know, whichever way you want to go with that if you're brand loyal to the repair manual, and I buy that because it's amazing how many thousands and thousands of dollars I have saved over my lifetime, fixing things myself by looking at the repair manual. And it's great because every time something goes wrong with the vehicle, I can go to the index in the back and I can look up that part on the vehicle And it tells me what page that repair is on. And so I'll flip to the section where that repair is and I'll look and it has pictures and it has descriptions and it has instructions. And it tells me step by step what I need to do to fix that thing. That is not how the Bible works, (laughs) right? Can I get an amen? I don't ask for amens often, but it's not. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible is the story of God and man. And the Bible is an insight into how God thinks and how God operates. And the Bible is an insight into the principles of how life operates and what you can expect when you live and construct your life in a certain way. You cannot say, I've got a problem. Go to the Bible, go to an index in the back, look up what your problem is, find the passage. It lay out a five-step process for you to fix it. You follow those five things, the problem's fixed, and you move on with life. I mean, it would be great if it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way. There are answers in the Bible, but in order to find them, you have got to engage with the Bible, you must be willing to look beyond just the basic reading of a story that's presented. You must be willing to dig, to put forth the time and the effort and the energy to begin to understand the things that are written in the Bible. This is why so many people, when they run into problems and they think, oh, well, I've got no other choice. I guess I'll go to the Bible. They told me how I have answers. They open the Bible and they do not find answers because they only pick it up in an emergency and they do not have any understanding of what it is and they have no familiarity with it at all. Now, I could spend probably the rest of this year talking about what the Bible is, but that's not the direction we're going to go. The the thing that I want to talk about is how does that relate to those of us who are in that position or in that moment where we find ourselves sitting around, looking around wondering, now what? Now what? Where do I go from here? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and and I'm going to give you an example of how you've got to look beyond a story to find a principle to understand how you can begin to find answers in the Bible. Now, one of the things is we're looking at stories from ancient world. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the differences between the ancient world and our current world. And one of the things that's really, really difficult to wrap our minds around with within that is ancient warfare. Because our idea of warfare now and what it is that we do now, um, it's very different. And when it comes to ancient warfare, we can't help ourselves um, but to glamorize it, to fictionalize it, sanitize it, romanticize it. I mean, you go and you see ancient warfare in movies and there's these big swells of dramatic string music and there's slow motion shots and there's all of this stuff going on. And like one part of me as I watch these scenes in these movies are like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I never had to do that. But then another part of me is like, oh my goodness, that is so incredibly awesome. And if I had to do that, I would be awesome like that guy doing it, right? Like I would, I would be the conqueror. And there's a few movies where Hollywood's gotten a little better in portraying the realities of ancient warfare and what it is, but it will never be able to do it because it, it, had, it had a feeling to it. It had a smell to it. It had an atmosphere around it that we will never, ever, ever be able to fully comprehend. Because modern, war, modern warfare, um, we see it from a distance. We see it through scopes. We see it through cameras. We see it by drones. There's a distance to it. But ancient warfare was seen over the top of a shield looking into the eyes of your enemy. And as you looked over that shield and your stomach was in your throat and you could probably barely breathe, barely process the action that was going on around you, you would look and there was no distant killing like there is now. Uh, there There was a story the other day that I read that a sniper put down an enemy combatant from a mile and a half away. Incredible shot there were no mile and a half kills in ancient warfare. There were only kills at arm's length. And as you looked over your shield into the eyes of your enemy, they were so close, you could probably smell their breath as they were breathing hard. And when you looked into their eyes, you either saw fear or terror or perhaps just savagery. Perhaps as you looked into their eyes, you kind of saw that glazed over look of somebody who had to drink themselves into the courage to show up on the field that day. But the worst thing that you could possibly see in your enemy's eyes as you looked over your shield was calm. Because if you saw calm, you were looking over the shield at an experienced, professional killer who was not moved by the moment. And the odds of you walking away alive were very, very low. And many of times because of the amount of adrenaline that was just coursing through your body, when you would have these fights, you would not even know that you were injured until it was over. And when the battle is over, you would go and you would wash the blood off of yourself because make no mistake, there would be blood all over you. You would have to wash the blood off of yourself to find out, is this my blood or is this enemy's my enemy's blood? And if it was yours, odds are you were going to die a death from a painful infection. And that was going to be your fate. There was nothing romantic about it. And it's... Facing this moment, this kind of situation where we find our story for today in chapter 17, beginning in verse one, it says, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sequoah in Judah and saw on the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Allah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites, the other with the valley in between them. You know this story. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. And he was six cubits in a span, which for those of you who are not fluent in spans, is about nine and a half feet tall. And his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's a lot of shekels. That's about 15 pounds. Out on the end of this about six-foot-long spear. This was not a throwing javelin. This was a killing spear. And because of his size, Goliath was able to stand behind the first line of his men who had their shields up. And he was able to take that spear and he was able to reach over the top and kill and kill and kill and kill. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come up and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Saul was the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and able to kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and were terrified. And Goliath came out day day after day, for weeks. And Israel needed a champion. They needed someone to rise up and to meet this challenge. And all of the Israelite army looked to their king. And they looked to their king for two reasons. One, he was the king. He was the one where leadership was supposed to come from. But the second reason they looked to him is not only was he the king, but he was the largest man in the Israelite army. In fact, that was one of the reasons that he was chosen to be king. He stood a full shoulder and head above all of the other Israelites. And so when a giant comes out to challenge Israel, it's only natural for the Israelite to turn and look to their largest man to step up. And meet the challenge. And they waited and waited and waited for the king to emerge from his tent and meet the challenge of the giant. And the reason that they turned to him and the reason that they waited and waited and waited is because that is where their hope laid. In their king. And that's where this ancient story begins to intersect with our current culture and perhaps our current lives and situations. Because what's true of me and what's true of you is that we place our hope in that which we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. And when the person that we put our hope in disappoints us, oftentimes that becomes the measure of our disdain, anger, and disappointment with them. The same amount of hope that we placed in them is the amount of anger and disappointment that we have in them when they disappoint us. And in this story, Saul is conspicuously absent. And each day he sits in his tent. And as each day passes... Without a response from him, his credibility is eroded away. And as his credibility wanes, so does the hope of the army of Israel. Now, this is why God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. God wanted their hope to rest on him. He never intended for their hope to rest on a man. In fact, about 400 years before this, God had established Israel as a theocracy. That is, I am going to be the king of you, Israel. And he set Israel up as a nation where God was at the top. He was the king. He was their hope. He was who they looked to. And he created them as a nation of laws and laws that were administered by judges. But everywhere else around them, the model was every nation had a king. Every nation had a king. And eventually they decided they wanted a king as well. That they wanted to be like everyone else. But what they forgot was that God had created Israel for a specific reason. Israel was to point to him. And the salvation of the world was to come through Israel. And God wanted it to be so that when people looked at Israel and they saw the greatness of that nation, that they did not ask, who is the king of Israel? But that their question as they looked towards the nation of Israel was, who is their God? But in choosing to have a man as a king, they chose to reject God. And when they did, life became much more complicated but it was all of that that sets the stage for perhaps what is the most detailed account of a life that we have in the Bible. And that's the story of Israel's second king. The person who is the master, (laughs) who has the corner market on the what now moment, David. And as we're gonna see, David was not a perfect king but there is one thing that he got right within his time as king, is that he loved the law, which was the opposite of what most kings did. Most kings did not love the law. Most kings adjusted the law to fit their whims and their behavior. But David wasn't that kind of king. David never lost sight of the fact that even though he was a king, he was not the king of Israel. And he was never confused about his limited role. And in spite of his popularity and in spite of his power and his success, he never was confused as to who it was and where his hope rested. But for many of us, that's not the case. For many of us, success confuses us. And it happens to the best of us. We experience a little bit of success and next thing we know, we are sitting on the throne of our own lives. We experience a little bit of maybe sales success or family success or parenting success. Maybe it's success in our finances or some academic success. But somehow in life, when we become successful and we begin doing things and things begin working because of the things that we're doing, we have the tendency to next thing we know, we're sitting on the throne of our lives. And when we sit on the throne of our own lives, we place our hope in us. And the problem with that is we will eventually disappoint us and if we have placed our hope in ourselves when we disappoint us we have no hope and we're left to ask the question now what of all the mistakes that David made and he made a lot he never made this one he knew where his hope lay. And we catch a glimpse of that, that, that thing inside of him that had no doubt and did not waver in that when he was just 15 years old, trying to stay out of the way of his brothers. Saul and the Israelites are dismayed and terrified of Goliath, and David has shown up bringing a care package from his home for his brothers. And he sees the commotion and he works his way kind of the front to see what's going on and what everybody's kind of stirred up about and what's happening. And he hears the taunts of Goliath. And he responds. But instead of being dismayed and terrified, which is the way everybody else on the scene responded, he responds by being offended. And he starts to ask questions. And it's in these questions that he asks that we see the clarity that David possessed as to where his hope rested. Verse 26, it says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? I can just imagine the seasoned soldiers who were standing around, who heard them ask this question and looked at him and thought, who are you, you little nothing, to even be asking this question? He is a battle-hardened giant. You have no idea what that means. You have not experienced that. He's the veteran of many shield walls. And our king... Our king, who we expect to fight this giant, is nowhere to be found. We don't know what you think this is, little boy, but this is a military endeavor. So why don't you go ahead and say that again? Remove this disgrace from Israel. But David keeps going. And he says this, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, nobody had asked that question up to this point. Nobody else who stood there and heard Goliath day after day come out and taunt them, looked at it this way. And him saying this uncircumcised Philistine, that meant he was that, that, that Goliath was outside of the covenant of God. He was outside of the protection of God. And here he was outside of the covenant, outside of the protection. And he was trying to take a land that God had promised to the Israelites. And David's response is, who does this man think that he is? And why isn't anybody doing anything about it? To which, when you look at that situation and this 15-year-old boy saying this to this army of experienced warriors, the only response is, wow, the courage That he had. So word gets back to Saul. Saul, there's somebody talking about challenging the giant. So Saul sends for him bring that man here. And he sends for David. And when David walks in, Saul takes one look and probably shakes his head and is immediately disappointed. Because David's no soldier, he has no scars. He has no battle wounds. He's just a boy. He wasn't even old enough to drive to the battlefield. He probably had to take an Uber. I'm just just kidding. The driving age was much lower back then. He probably drove. But Saul immediately dismisses him. He says, no, this is not happening. But David pleads his case. And David begins to tell him, I am just a shepherd, but while I was a shepherd, my flock was attacked by a lion. And instead of just saying like, well, I'll let the lion have the one and get the rest out of here while he's occupied with that. No, I will save them all. And I killed the lion. And the same thing happened with a bear while I was watching my flock. And after he tells this story, he says to Saul, he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, and he's probably thinking, and why has no one seen this up to this point? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine there was no confusion for David. He had extraordinary clarity while everyone else was sitting around wondering, now what? Now what do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we handle this situation? David saw what no one else saw. And he knew that an enemy of God's people was an enemy of God. And David, at a very young age, wrapped his head around this idea. And this was an idea that stuck with him throughout the entire remainder of his reign and his life. He had this idea and he understood it and took it to heart that a man or a woman who places their faith and their hope in God need not fear. Even when there is something to be afraid of. They need not fear. So he told Saul, Saul, pick me, pick me. Let me do what no one else is willing to do. And one of the things that makes what we have in the account of the life of David just absolutely incredible in the scriptures is, not, is that we don't just have an account of his life we also have within the Psalms, we have writings of David to where we have an insight into his thoughts, into his feelings and his emotions that he was experiencing during different times of his life. And in those words, we find this. In Psalms 25, he writes, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. David, David, where's your trust? Is it in your talent? It is in your power? Is it in your influence? In your wealth? In the position that you hold? David would say, no. I have placed my trust in God. And that was a posture that God desired for the nation of Israel to hold, but they could not hold it. They would have it for a minute. And then they would go away from it, but they found this posture in their second King. And he says this verse three, he says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then he writes something that you just don't see any other King writing this idea that they just won't even entertain. He says, guide me to which people would read that and say, David, you're the King. You're supposed to be guiding us. You're the one calling the shots. But David says, guide me in your truth and teach me for you are my God, my savior, and my hope is in you all day long. This was the thought. This was the core of what David felt about God. So there he is, 15 years old. Clear-eyed, confident, yet somehow humble. He makes his way into the valley to face the giant. And we can just imagine all of the Philistines' reactions as they saw him making his way down. And they see that the Israelites have sent out a boy with no armor. And I can just imagine that most, if not all, of the soldiers of the Israelite army just felt their hope vaporize. As they watched David make his way down, they were probably beginning to come to terms with being servants and slaves of the Philistines. When David gets down there and they face off, Goliath repeats his threats. David waits for him to finish. Then he says this. He says, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And he says, let me point to the future. Let me tell you what's coming your way. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day, I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And then he kills the giant and he instantly becomes the most popular man in the nation of Israel. And he became the most feared man Amongst the Philistines. And then the Philistines make a tragic decision. They turn and they begin to run. And the Israelite army chases them and the slaughter lasts all day long. See, David did something that Saul couldn't do. And the reason that he was able to do something that Saul couldn't do is because he saw something that Saul could not see. And so it is for those who place their hope in the Lord. Those who place their hope in the Lord and not in themselves and not in their talents and not in their paycheck and not in the circumstances that are going around on around them. They are able to see clearly and act confidently. Yet walk humbly. They recognize what they cannot control which is outcomes because there are too many variables for us to ever have control over outcomes. So instead they lean the weight of their life against the one who holds the world and all variables and outcomes within his hands. So what do you do when you get to the now what moment? What do you do? the first thing you have to do is you have to recognize who or what you are actually trusting in. And when he came to David, he said this, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. In fact, why don't we say this together? In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. There is power in that. When you are able to encounter circumstances where things are not going your way and you don't know what to do next, to be able to sit and say, I do not place my hope in what I do next. My hope is in my God. My hope is in you all day long. This is a powerful statement. And wrapping our minds around this idea sets us up for the rest of this series. And this is just a bit. This this is, some of you may be really unsatisfied with where we're leaving this off. Cause you're like, man, I'm really in a now what moment and that doesn't help me too much. That's why you need to come back next week. Cause we're gonna go further. But imagine if in the midst of your greatest success, this was your posture, no matter how good I am, my hope lies in God. And then imagine, That in those moments when it looks like the world has turned against you, this remained your posture. There is strength and relief to be found there. Now over the next few weeks, we're gonna see how David handles some of his many, many, many now what moments. But for this week, when you spend time alone with God. And as you hopefully go back and kind of review this story in this passage, there's lots of parts we skip and kind of begin to look below the surface of this is just a story to understand the principles that lie there for us to uncover, to provide answers for us. Ask God, do I place my hope in you? Where's my hope in myself? And be humble enough to admit the answer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so grateful that we have these ancient texts that detail the interactions of you and mankind. God, that we have examples of people who while they live thousands of years away from our world with circumstances that on the surface seem so completely unrelatable, that God, if we take the time to get below the surface, that the principles are so deep and that the emotions felt and the choices to be made are so similar. Lord, thank you for the example that you have given us of the people who have gone before us and navigated these waters. Let us be wise enough and strong enough to draw from their experience. And Lord, for those in this room today who may be in the middle of a now what moment, Lord, I pray this week that you make it abundantly clear where their hope is. Lies and begin to make clear the way to putting our hope back in you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen, thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week as we continue on wondering, now what?